0: Well, last week we looked at uh, a prayer of confession in Psalm 51, and in it uh, we saw that God invites us to bring our sins to him in prayer and to receive his grace. Um, But this week we're we're, uh, taking a slight turn to look uh, at Psalm 77, where we see that not only are we to bring our sins to God in prayer, but uh, we are to bring our sorrows to God in prayer as well. Um, The reality is that because of uh, the fallenness of human nature and the brokenness of the world around us, uh, we not only carry guilt, but we also carry wounds. We also carry sorrows with us. Uh, and our guilt is, is always our fault, um, most definitely, but our wounds and our sorrows are, are not always our fault. We receive wounds in life because of the tragedies we face. We receive wounds because of other people's sins against us. We receive wounds because of injustice that takes place in our lives and in the lives of, of those around us. And because this is the case, we not only pray to God confessing our sins, but we're also invited to pray to God bringing our sorrows to him in what's called lament. lament. Lament is a very large genre uh, within the psalms. There are 67 psalms of lament comprising uh, the largest genre of psalms in the book of Psalms. and that's, that, that means that almost half the psalms are, are psalms of laments. Not to mention, we also have other texts uh, that, that bear witness to the importance of this sacred act as well. Uh, the book of Lamentations, which is a whole book devoted to this ancient practice. Also, uh, we see a slew of, of laments in the narrative and, and prophetic books of the Bible. Uh, but even with this sort of extraordinarily large amount of laments in the Bible. If you look across the landscape of of worship and prayer in Western Christianity, this this practice has has, it seems to be it's largely been forgotten or or discarded. In which, however much it may intentionally do so, communicates some really unfortunate messages. Messages like, you should not be sorrowful, messages like "You, you should not mourn. You should not lament. You should not bring your sorrows to God, and that doing so is even sinful or wrong. And Maybe you grew up in a sort of, a sort of church tradition that, that told you that being sorrowful, that, that lamenting and mourning was actually a sign of a lack of faith. But I want you to know that that, that is a lie from the pit of hell. The 67 Psalms of Lament, the Book of Lamentations, the whole host of of biblical texts that show God's people bringing their tears to him in prayer uh, bear witness to the reality. The the tears that Jesus cried himself, his sorrows at the funeral of his friend, his lament over the city of Jerusalem bear witness to the reality that our tears can be sanctified and that we can bring them to God in prayer. And because of this practice being largely forgotten, you might be somewhat unfamiliar with the genre of lament in the Holy Scripture, uh, but there is, is buried treasure. Here for God's people. The Psalms of Lament, uh, they are a diverse bunch. Uh, they include private and corporate laments. Uh, the, the private laments in, include uh, are, are generally recognized by the use of, of words like me and my and I, and the corporate laments are generally recognized by words like us and we and our. Uh, laments take the form of confession, of complaining about a personal illness, of, of protesting uh, certain political injustices, of mourning military defeats and and more. Uh, Interestingly, uh, the laments tend to share a basic structure, though. Even with their diversity for reasons, uh, and and even in their uh, diversity of of whether they're corporate or individual, uh, they share a a basic structure. Um, There's a little diversity, but generally speaking, the genre of lament in the Psalms always includes a few basic components. Uh, There's always an opening address or an opening statement uh, addressing God. And this is the case because laments always cry out to God. Laments are not, you know, internally focused uh, processing of grief. Uh, It is an externally focused uh, prayer. It's focused on God and his character and his promises. Uh, Next, there's always a complaint. Uh, This is the the sort of focal point of the lament. It always makes known to God a certain situation or, or circumstances that are painful or wrong or unjust. Now The psalmist complains to God about a situation or circumstance that doesn't align with his character and kingdom. Uh, Next, there is typically, though not always, there's typically a request, a sort of petitioning God uh, for for, uh, a change in circumstances. God's intervention in the situation to make things right. And lastly, a lament generally includes, uh, typically though not always, uh, includes a statement of trust. It concludes with a statement of trust. They often close with expressing to God that he is their hope, that he is their their peace, that he is their comfort, even if their circumstances don't change. He is enough and that they trust him. That's generally how they close. And our psalm this morning is Psalm 77. If you'd like to stand with me, we're gonna read this. And I think you'll start to see some of those elements, some of those, some of those uh, basic components in this psalm as well. And then we'll spend a few moments meditating on it and looking at it and exposing, expositing this text. Let's listen to God's word with reverence and joy. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, um, many of us are here this morning in a a diverse array of, of circumstances. Some of us are coming in here numb and cold. Some of us are coming in here burdened with sorrows. It seems like we we cannot continue to bear them. Some of us come in here uh, burdened with guilt. Some of us come in here just experiencing the, the fullness of joy in your presence. And and there are many other circumstances and, and situations that, that people in this room are in. And, and, and in the midst of it all, Lord, we, we look to you. We know that, that you are our true comfort, our true relief, our true hope, our true blessing, our true joy. And so would you satisfy us now with your presence? Would you help us to to not merely comprehend the truth, but to participate in it? Lord, to, to sense your nearness and to find comfort in you alone. Lord, and to that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight? our rock, and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, the outline for this psalm is, is much like the other psalms of lament uh, that we just discussed. We, we, we see an opening statement in verses 1 to 3. Uh, we see the complaint in verses 4 to 9. And we see a statement of trust in verses 10 to 20. And so we're going to look at the text based on its given outline this morning. Look with me at praying our sorrows in verses 1 to 3, presenting our complaints in verses 4 to 9, and prevailing unto comfort in verses 10 to 20. Praying our sorrows, presenting our complaints, and prevailing unto comfort. Uh, First, praying our sorrows. The psalmist's opening statement is one of uh, desperation. Asaph says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. So while penning this psalm, uh, Asaph was deeply troubled. And, and uh, we don't uh, know exactly why he was so troubled. Uh, you'll, you'll find that pretty much all of the 67 psalms of lament are sufficiently vague Um, we we often don't know the reason uh, for the complaints and for the laments. Reason being, uh, these psalms were meant to be used in the corporate worship and in the private prayers of God's people. They were deeply personal to the writer, yes, but they are also penned in such a way so that they can be deeply personal to the singer and prayer of these psalms and generations to come. And so truly, while, while Asaph is expressing these sorrows here, he's, he's, he's doing so in a deeply personal and vulnerable way. They are written in such a way that we can identify with these words. Who among us cannot identify with what Asaph is talking about here? Who among us has not faced circumstances wherein our souls refuse to be comforted? Who among us has not faced a time in life when sorrows overwhelm our souls like a flood? And even to the point where it feels like you can't find any relief. A time when, when tears just won't stop flowing. And, and every time you open your mouth to speak, nothing comes out but cries and groans and moaning and wailing. That's what Asaph is facing here. He says in verse four, I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. And you know, you know what he's talking about. Uh, I remember a time like this in my life. I was, I was a freshman in high school. My grandfather had just died. We, we, uh, we called him Papa. And uh, years earlier, when I was three or four years old, uh, he, he'd suffered a, a massive stroke that left the left side of his body paralyzed and he had trouble speaking and communicating uh, and doing basic uh, uh, life things in uh, all the rest of his years, up until I was a freshman in high school, uh, but he was he was a precious man and, and even though he was small and in stature and and rather uh, feeble, he was still a giant figure in our family, and uh, he He even continued to be with the major changes in his health and and when he died, you know it was weird for a few days i, I, I just I was kind of dazed, which um, honestly that was kind of to be expected. I'm not an extremely emotionally expressive person. Um, but at the funeral, something broke. And uh, I just began to wail and weep. I was so troubled that, that I couldn't utter a sentence. Every time I tried to open my mouth to say something to someone, I, nothing came out but weeping and crying and groaning. I, I couldn't utter a sentence. And probably most of us have faced times like this in life. As I share that, maybe a specific occasion comes to your mind. Maybe it was like me, you, you experienced the death of a loved one. Or, 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 or maybe uh, it, it's a broken relationship or, or continued struggles with bouts of depression and anxiety. Or, or maybe it's because of severe mistreatment or abuse from someone that you trusted. Or maybe it's a public embarrassment or, or a, a, a tormented conscience or a physical infirmity. Maybe it's something else entirely. Whatever it is, you, you likely know what Asaph is talking about here. Or Even if you don't, the truth of the matter is that you probably will one day. Like suffering comes to everyone. It's universal to the human experience. Hard times come or they will come. They have come or they will come. Everyone suffers. And so the question for us is, is not, do we know what Asaph is talking about? Or will we face similar sorrows in life? That's not the question. The question is, what do you do when that takes place? What do you do when that takes place? Because generally we do one of two things. Uh, we either stuff those intrusive emotions down and, and numb ourselves or distract ourselves with social media or TV or work or religious activity or something like that. We, we distract ourselves and numb ourselves with just busyness and distraction. We either do that or we tend to be controlled by those emotions we tend to, to let them determine the way that we view reality and the way that we, we live our lives, the way that we react. We, we let them control us. We do one of those two things. We despair and we let our, dem- our emotions determine the way that we view the reality and the way that we live our lives. We stuff them down and numb ourselves or we let them control us. But Asaph doesn't do either of those things. He doesn't seek to distract himself or numb himself. He faces his sorrows head on. He communes with his own soul. He meditates in his heart. He faces what has him in this place, in this frame, in this state. He doesn't run from it. He doesn't stuff his sorrows down and numb himself. And and, and maybe that's what you were taught to do. Maybe you were taught to do that because you were trained to believe that being overwhelmed by sorrow meant that you're a bad Christian. Maybe you grew up, like like we mentioned earlier, in a church tradition that treated sorrow and mourning and lament as a sign of a lack of faith. Or maybe that's just what your family did growing up, and so that's what you kind of picked up as the the correct course of action, just stuffing it down, numbing yourself, and and not uh, facing what has you so sorrowful. But these these prayers, these words from Asaph, this mourning and weeping and lament, this is a God-breathed text that invites you to bring your sorrows to God in prayer. So we're not called to be tritely cheerful when overwhelmed by sorrow. We're not called to be cold and numb. And so Asaph doesn't stuff his emotions, but nor does he let his emotions control him and his view of reality and his response. He cries aloud to God. He, he prays, revealing something key to us. Now remember, er, earlier in the series, we, we uh, began with quoting J.I. Packer at the beginning, and, and, and he once said that the Psalms teach us how to feel. But not only do they teach us how to feel, but they also teach us where to bring our feelings Our emotions don't belong in the driver's seat of our lives, nor do they belong in the trunk. The proper place for our emotions is before God in prayer. That's the proper place for your sorrows. That's the proper place for your tears is before God in prayer. That's what a lament is. It's holding your sorrows before God in prayer. It's bringing your sorrows to God in prayer. And understand, uh, really briefly, let me just say lamenting and mourning in prayer is not a mere kind of venting of emotion to, to provide a sort of emotional or psychological relief. Uh, that, that may be a side effect of uh, lamenting and bringing your sorrows to God in prayer and expressing them to him in prayer, but that's not what it is. Bringing your sorrows to God in prayer is an act of trust. It's a, it's a seeking of God's intervention in a dire situation. It's a seeking of comfort in the only place that can provide true, eternal, and lasting comfort, the presence of God. But interestingly, even, even as Asaph is doing this, he still is not finding any sort of comfort, at least not right away. Look, look This psalm, this lament is, is very unique in this way. Look at verse three. Asaph says, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. As he thinks about God and, and remembers God, instead of it being a comfort to him, he he increases in sorrow. He moans, he, he meditates on his own soul and on God, and, and his spirit faints. He's, he's found relief and comfort in, in times of distress in God before. But, but now it seems that God is absent. Asaph, he feels forgotten by God in the midst of his sorrow, and it causes him to increase in sorrow rather than helping him to find comfort and relief. He's seeking God's face because he knows this is where I find true hope, true rest, true blessing. But it seems that God is nowhere to be found. And so in light of this, he he presents a very specific complaint it's not, it's not a complaint about what's causing his sorrow in the first place, but a complaint about God's apparent absence in the midst of, of Asaph being overwhelmed with sorrow. He feels abandoned and forsaken by God. And so with sorrow doubled over, he brings the full weight of it to God in his complaint. As we mentioned earlier, complaints are are an essential component in any lament. The complaint is a sort of focal point in the lament, and it's it's the part uh, that all psalms of lament include. You could even think of the, the complaint as the lament within the psalm of lament itself. And so Asaph writes, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. Because of God's being seemingly absent. Asaph can't even sleep. He's so distressed, so troubled, so overwhelmed by the turmoil of his soul that he can't even speak. And to find some scrap of comfort, some morsel of relief, he goes through the archives of his own personal history. Uh, I I consider the days of old, the years long ago. And he's, he's hoping here to find something to give him some sliver of hope. Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. You know, what, what caused me to sing in the midst of dark times in the past? What before has sustained me in the, in the day of trouble? What, what kept me from being overwhelmed? Who, what, what kept me when I was overwhelmed and, and sorrowful? Let, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate and find something to give me some help here. You know, every every believer's life is filled with, with testimonies of favor and steadfast love of, of God's grace and promises and compassion. But even in this, Asaph's soul refuses to be comforted. Rather, it just stirs up a slew of questions for him. And so he offers six complaints in the form of questions. And they're questions that have to do with with God's covenant with his people. A covenant is a relationship based on promises and pledges. And this is the kind of relationship that God has with his people. Our relationship with God as his people is is based on his promises and pledges and his word. And so the psalmist Asaph here is approaching God and he's complaining to God and he's asking if he is going to be unfaithful to his promises and pledges to his people. Look what he says. He says, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Now, we're a very pious people. And so most of us would probably not think that it is appropriate to approach God with questions like these. If we heard someone in our gathering or in city group pray like this, we might take them aside afterward and rebuke them and say, you know, what's, what's wrong with you? Of course, that, that's ridiculous. Why would you ask those silly questions? If this wasn't in the Bible, we would likely think that praying like this is just not okay. But here, this text is God's inspired word. And, and not only that, but, but this is a psalm, as we've been saying, this is God's inspired words that he places in our mouths to speak back to him in prayer. Meaning that God is saying, it's okay to approach me like this. Asaph approaches God in prayer and he presents his complaint and says, God, why are you standing around with your hand in your pockets? I'm dying here. Where are you? These are real questions that he's asking in in the distress of his soul right now. He's making a diligent search here. And again, I I love this because what we see here is is that the Psalms face the various difficulties and questions of life as they really are. Not in some pretended way. There's nothing that we can't bring to God in prayer. There's, There's nothing that we cannot bring to him. Walter Brueggemann, he says of of this reality in his book on the Psalms, he says, The book of the Psalms insists that all experiences of disorder are a proper subject for discourse with God. There is nothing out of bounds, nothing inappropriate. Everything properly belongs in the conversation of the heart. To withhold parts of life from that conversation is in fact to withhold part of life from the sovereignty of God. Everything must be brought to speech and everything brought to speech must be addressed to God who is the final reference for all of life. There's nothing that we cannot bring to God and there's no complaint, there's no question that cannot be brought to his Throne. John Whitvallit said, we bring our most intense theological questions right into the sanctuary. In Christ, God invites this. He welcomes it. And I, I know that as we've kind of implemented these various times of lament and, and prayer and, and lament in our Sunday services on a regular basis, there's, there's almost, at first, there's almost kind of like a, can we really pray this way? Are we, are we allowed to do this? And the answer, according to the Psalms, is yes, indeed, God wants you to. And so for some of us, maybe you're not quite sure what to do in these times of of corporate lament and prayer, but God invites you to bring your most intense theological questions right into the sanctuary. He invites you to bring your complaints and your questions to his throne freely. If you're experiencing sorrows and struggling to find God's face in the midst of it all, struggling to see his hand in the midst of it all, be encouraged. God invites your complaints. He invites your questions. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to pray your sorrows. He wants you to present your complaints to him. And he wants you to prevail in this until you find comfort in him. In verses 10 to 20, we, say, we see Asaph's prevailing in prayer and meditation and remembering God's works of redemption. And as he prevails, he receives comfort. Uh, I, I grew up in the Pentecostal tradition, and uh, I remember some of the old ladies, uh, the elderly people, they, they used to talk often about praying through. Is anyone familiar with that, that term, praying through? We, we talked often about praying through. It means like prevailing prayer. It means, it means uh, to, to, to pray until you find what you're after. It's, it's praying until you find that comfort, that relief, that assurance that you so long for. It's praying until you see God's face. Uh, praying through isn't, isn't praying, you know, nice prayers uh, in a composed manner. It's praying with the ugly cry sort of thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's praying fervently and heartily until the storm in your soul is assuaged. A picture that that, that kind of gets what we're after here is that of Jacob in Genesis 32. Jacob in, in Genesis 32, he's facing a desperate and dangerous night. And in the darkness, he wrestles with the Lord until daybreak. And he doesn't let go of the Lord until the Lord blesses him. that's, That's praying through, grabbing hold of the Lord and not letting go until you see his face, until he blesses you and comforts you with his presence. That's prevailing prayer. That's prevailing unto comfort. And that's what Asaph is doing here. He says, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. There's nothing that provides remedy for the soul's maladies like God's works of redemption found in his word. And so this is where Asaph looks and this is where he finds relief and comfort after much groaning and praying and tears and meditating and remembering, he finally gets what he's after. And you can see the the turn, you can easily see the turn that takes place here Asaph goes from speaking of himself and his situation mostly to speaking about God and his greatness and his work of redemption. He, he goes from speaking of I and my to thee and thy. He, he goes from, from uh, lamenting his, his, the state and frame of his soul to glorying in the work of redemption that the Lord had done in days past. And it's here that Asaph finds his soul's relief. And, and I want you to see here, Because I'm sure that there was no change in Asaph's circumstances as he was writing this. It wasn't as if he wrote verses 1 to 9 and someone uh, he's he's lamenting he's getting in dire circumstances and then someone walks in right before he starts in verse 10 and and tells him that all of his troubles have been taken care of. No, likely nothing changed between verses 9 and 10. Yet here in verses 10 to 20, he's expressing a peace and a comfort that surpasses understanding. And probably one of the most potent examples of this is in, in the last century was, uh, it was African-American churches during the Civil Rights Movement. I remember hearing a story some time ago from a well-known pastor. Uh, he had spent much of his time studying the, the Civil Rights Movement and learning from the example of, of the leadership uh, therein. And he had always been struck by the composure and the dignity and the peace with which leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. and John Perkins and Rosa Parks uh, faced the, the various oppositions and persecutions in their life with. He, he, they, they faced it with a sort of peace and comfort that seemed to pass all understanding. And so on one occasion, this pastor got a chance to meet a well-known civil rights movement leader. And he just had to know. So after he got done doing this talk, he kind of went up and he waited, you know, and kind of uh, waited till he's done talking with some other people. And he pulled him aside and he asked, what kept you going? What, what, what kept you going while your houses were being burnt down? And, and police let their dogs out on your children. And, and, and while people were killed and beat and tortured, what, what kept you going? And the civil rights movement leader responded, it was the day, it was the way that we worshipped. Every Lord's Day, we sought the face of God. We, we gathered together and we lamented and we cried out and we prevailed in prayer. And, and when we walked out of those church doors just a few hours later, not much had changed, nothing changed. We still faced the same injustices. We still faced the same persecution and the same opposition. We still faced unimaginable sorrows and yet we were different. We had a peace, a comfort that surpasses all understanding in the midst of of hard times and days of trouble. And that's what Asaph is experiencing here. He writes, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Now he's recalling something specific here. He's recalling the work of God in the Exodus story. And he's, he's, he's recalling how God rescued the people of Israel for himself. He's recalling how he brought them out of slavery and, and out of Egypt and how he rescued them, as, as the Lord says in Exodus 19, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He's recalling all of the wonders that the Lord did to accomplish this. He recalls the frogs and, and, and the floods and the flies, and he recalls the plagues and the Passover, and he recalls it all. And, and then he goes on to remember one very specific event. In the Exodus story, he recalls Israel crossing through the Reed Sea and being brought to the other side in safety. He writes When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And now it's, it's, it's interesting that Asaph recalls that specific event in the Exodus story, isn't it? Out of all the things that took place in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, in Joshua, after all that took place in all those texts, all the miraculous events he focuses on, he recalls specifically when Israel went through the Reed Sea. And as I was reflecting on why he might do that this week, I think I think I know why he mentions this event specifically. If you remember when we were looking at Jonah a couple of months ago, we saw Jonah go down into the sea at the lowest part of his life in the story. And we saw that in the ancient Near East at this time, the the waters, the sea, they were associated with chaos and death and the grave and destruction and judgment. And yet, In this particular event, in the Exodus narrative, the Lord walks, he guides, he saves his people and guides his people and is present with his people through walking in the sea, walking through this body of water and he guides them through this particular circumstance. He keeps them safe in the midst of chaos and in the midst of darkness and with death all around, even though the Egyptians just close behind were all destroyed therein. And remembering this wondrous work of redemption done by God all those years ago, Asaph is finding present comfort in the midst of chaos and confidence for the future. Again, we don't know in particular what Asaph is going through here, but in his soul, he's facing chaos and darkness and death all around him. He's going through it right now. And he's comforted by the reality that God was present to lead his people through it all those years earlier, and that he saved them from being destroyed by the Egyptians by leading them through this this time of darkness and chaos. He's comforted by the reality that, that God is a God who is near to his people in the day of trouble. He's a God who walks through those days of trouble with his people and who guides them along the way, who is present with them along the way. A new covenant believer, we, we too, we are to look back to God's word for our comfort and assurance and peace in the midst of darkness and chaos and when we're drowning in sorrows. In the day of trouble, we look to God's word and we have even greater works of redemption to recall. Because the God of Exodus, the, the God of the plagues, the God of, uh, of, of, that brought Israel through the sea, the God of Jacob and Joseph, and the God of Moses and Aaron is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the God of Calvary. And on Calvary was fixed the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. On it, he stretched out his hands and faced the most severe darkness, the most severe chaos he faced the most distressing sorrow that human, any human being has ever faced. He bore all the weight of our sins and our guilt and our shame and our sorrows. He faced the unmitigated wrath of God. He faced forsakenness from God and man. He faced death. He faced the grave. He faced what no human being has never faced before. And yet it was here that God was present to rescue us. It was here that he was redeeming us. It was here that he was justifying us and making us his very own treasure. And three three days later, he rose again to prove it, bringing us out of slavery to death and sin and guilt. And that brings such comfort, such peace in the midst of sorrow and suffering. You know, because sometimes the Lord, does, he brings you through the, 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 the day of trouble. He brings deliverance. He defeats your enemies and, and he miraculously acts on your behalf. He does that sometimes. But sometimes he doesn't. And sometimes his, his, his comfort comes in knowing that although you suffer now, you never suffer alone. Jesus cries and the cross echo in your heart. We can be comforted because, because whatever it is that we go through, we have Christ, our God and our King who knows what you're going through and he has experienced it himself. Hebrews 14 says that he's able to sympathize with us because he's gone through all that we, have gone, or all that we are going through. In the midst of trials, he's, he's gone through them. In the midst of the days of trouble, he has gone through them before. And because he's experienced all that humanity faces, he is full of compassion and love and pity because he faced all of that himself. He never leaves us in the midst of trial and tribulation, in the midst of sorrow and sadness. He walks through it with us, even if his footprints are unseen. And so returning to the six questions that Asaph asked earlier, He's really asking these questions. His spirit was diligently searching, really seeking, truly asking. He was struggling deeply in his soul to believe the truth of God's word, but in Christ, we've received our answer for each one of his questions. Will the Lord spurn forever? And Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Will the Lord never again be favorable? Luke, Luke 4, 4.19, Jesus said that he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? John thirteen one. Jesus loved his own and he loved them to the end. Are his promises at an end for all time? Second Corinthians one twenty. all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Jesus Christ, he will never forget to be gracious. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13:8 eight says, Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And Jesus was full of compassion. Matthew 9, 36, he had compassion. Matthew 14, 4, he had compassion. Matthew 15, 32, Jesus says, I have compassion. And a slew of other texts say the same. He is unending in compassion. He looks upon you in your state, in your frame, and he has compassion. And so all of the answers to Asaph's questions are no. No, the Lord will not spurn forever and never again be grateful. Has his steadfast love ever ceased? No. Are his promises at at an end? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Are his promises at an end? Has he shut up his anger and compassion? No. Jesus gives us our answer. And his answer is that God is for us, that he is with us, and that he will be faithful forever. Our sorrows are real. Our sorrows are significant, yes, yes. But they're not the last word. They are real and they are significant. But but they don't determine what we believe about God. Jesus does. And in Jesus, God has promised to be near to those who are brokenhearted. Therefore, we can rest assured that in the day of trouble, we can be confident that our future will be eternal life, free from su- such suffering and sorrow. And we have proof of this in the promise of Jesus Christ, who is the man of sorrows, who suffered crucifixion and death, but who rose again. On the third day to reign forevermore. He is our hope. He is our peace. He is our rest. He is our comfort in the midst of sorrow and suffering. And for when sorrows overwhelm us, we run to Him, we pray our sorrows, we present our complaints, and we prevail unto comfort. Let's pray.